I'm sure that conversation went something like this. <laughs> Howdy, you're listening to Come and Take It, a talk show about Texas by Texans, where three friends born and raised in the Lone Star State share views on the history, culture, and just what it means to be Texan. I'm Mike Zolkowski. I'm Sean McIver. And I'm Scott Elfstrom. He was a San Antonio Air Force kid who had a professional wrestling career spanning three decades, earning a reputation as both the best and most difficult performer in the business and the title of Mr. WrestleMania. Today we're talking about the showstopper, the icon, the heartbreak kid himself, Shawn Michaels. But first, what's your favorite wrestling move performed by a Texas wrestler? Look, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shoot for the moon here. I'm going to shoot for the moon just like we did in that episode a couple years ago. It's got to be the Iron Claw, right? Von Erichs all the way. Can Definitely the Iron Claw. Can you top that? Well, I mean, Bull Curry didn't have a specific move, and he was not—he was a Texas star, but he wasn't a Texas-born wrestler. So I'll give you the—I'll give you the Iron Claw from the, the fabulous Von Erichs. Uh, mine would either be uh, the Undertaker's Tombstone. The Undertaker's a native of uh, Houston, I believe, or a legendary uh, wild man himself, Terry Funk, his moonsault, which he started doing when he was in his fifties. Mm. Which is crazy. And, he invented a new 60s. move when he he was... didn't invent it. He he just picked it up. But it was oh. it's it's a it's a backward somersault off the top rope where you land chest first on your opponent who's laying down or standing up. Oh jeez, yeah, but that's tough to land. Yeah, much less when you're in your your sixties. Yeah, especially when you got no cartilage in your knees. <laughs> oh man, well I don't I don't know about the pros. Um, when I was a kid, I I. I knew a lot of wrestlers that I watched on TV. I couldn't tell you who was from Texas and who wasn't. But I do know that whatever my uncle did to me and my cousins, me and my brother, my cousin, to make us yell, um, you know, great Lord Uncle Buddy, uh, to let us, you know, in order for him to let us up, whatever he did was pretty effective. So I'm going to go with that. Oh, Uncle Buddy. <laughs> we, yeah. Not just uh, Uncle Buddy, you know. You, you, most bullies will uh, tell you to yell Uncle. Um, we had to say Great Lord Uncle Buddy. <laughs> I could throw out. I should. I should have thrown out that story that time we were goofing around. Sean and I were goofing around like in his apartment after he'd moved, and like I think I did like I did something to trip him, and he fell in like fell onto like a microwave that was sitting on the floor. <laughs> <laughs> I hit my back. Yeah, I did. It is back really hard. The microwave. You take like, that oh, microwave, bitch. It's a Look, microwave my, cage fight. My kidneys. Ow. Leave, leave your pacemaker at home. I probably won't mention that story. Yeah. <laughs> Just did. That's perfect. That's uh, gold. That's good. In professional wrestling, the superstars are known for their actions in the ring to the bigger public. But the most devout and dedicated fans of the sport have always been fascinated with the stories of what goes on behind the scenes. The best stories often surround those individuals for who, good or bad, dominate those stories with their personalities and antics, where the camera isn't rolling and the spotlight isn't on them. Wrestling history has seen characters who are outstanding performers in the ring, and it has seen wrestlers who are known for parlaying their success into backstage power. It's also seen performers who are infamous for their wild and crazy behavior and personal habits. But every once in a while, someone is able to stand out in all three of those areas, such as San Antonio native Shawn Michaels, the Heartbreak Kid. 
Michaels parlayed a standout role in one of the late 1980s top tag teams, the Rockers, into a reputation as the best in-ring performer in wrestling by the mid-90s and dominating both the on-screen World Wrestling Federation world title as well as behind-the-scenes politics as the leader of an infamous clique of wrestlers called The Click, with a K, whose members would profoundly change wrestling and, indeed, popular culture in the 90s, 2000s, and they still deeply influence professional wrestling today. At the height of his success, often at the expense of those whom he formerly considered friends, Michael's personal life spiraled, and an injury took him off the stage at the start of the greatest boom in professional wrestling history. Five years later, Michael staged one of the most remarkable personal and professional comebacks in any endeavor to return to the business of professional wrestling. Now, the funny thing is, his name is not actually Shawn Michaels. Michael Shawn Hickenbottom was born in Chandler, Arizona on July 22, 1965, the youngest of four children. His father was in the Air Force, and as a military brat, he spent some time as a kid in reading England, but he later moved to and spent most of his time growing up in San Antonio. For his entire life, Michaels proudly claimed San Antonio as his home, even though he wasn't born there. While growing up, he disliked the name Michael and came to be called Sean, which is apparently common for South Texas. Isn't that right, Mike? Ha ha. I mean, yes. Michael but, Sean. Uh, yes. My name is Michael <laughs> Sean, and there are parts of my family that call me Sean. We get it. Clever writing, fellas. By the time he was 12, Sean already knew what he wanted to do with his life. Growing up in San Antonio, young Sean fell in love with professional wrestling. San Antonio had long been a home for professional wrestling, and in the 70s, the area was promoted out of Dallas by Fritz von Erich and out of Houston by Paul Bosch. The top stars of San Antonio wrestling were usually Texans like the Von Erichs, Bruiser Brody, Gino Hernandez, Manny Fernandez, the Guerrero Brothers, Chief Wahoo McDaniel, and a fiery Monterey native named Super Suck, Jose Lothario, who made himself a name as the most popular star of Houston wrestling since Bill Curry. Of course, we got to can't Wild forget... Wild Bill Curry. Wild Bill Curry. But of course, we can't forget Scott Casey as well. By his own admission, he was obsessed with wrestling. In high school, he and a friend performed a wrestling routine that included fake blood at the talent show. I'm sure that was a huge hit at his high school. Despite his small size, Hickenbottom was a talented athlete, and he was a standout linebacker and captain of the football team at the Randolph Air Force Base School. After graduation, he went to Southwest Texas State University in San Marcos, now Texas State, to play football. But he quickly dropped out and talked his dad into letting him begin a professional wrestling career. I'm sure that conversation went something like this. <laughs> yeah, there's a, there's, a, there's a video. Of, As a of career doc- military man, Dad, I'm sure that you understand. Yeah. Oh, boy. If I yeah. could be a fly yeah, on the wall a, in that a, conversation. There's a, there's, a, there's, a WWE produced, there's a WWE produced video about, about Shawn Michaels' life, and, and it's, they, he, they do speak to his father, and he has this... He's this kind of dry, dry older guy, real quiet, and he has this dry look on his face. Like, they came to me and he said, "I want to do wrestling." <laughs> so I drove him to a wrestling school. <laughs> well, in 1984, Hickenbottom began training under the tutelage of Jose Lothario, who'd started a wrestling school in San Antonio. Now, it was during this training that he first took on the ring name of Shawn Michaels, realizing that. 
Hickenbottom probably wouldn't sell many tickets. He simply adopted his first name as his professional surname. He debuted with the National Wrestling Alliance Mid-South Wrestling Territory, which at the time promoted in Louisiana, Arkansas, Oklahoma, and in Houston on October 16, 1984. He lost to journeyman wrestler Art Cruz, but he impressed many veterans with his performance and his good looks. Now, for the next couple of years, Michaels traveled to different territories, which were the regional areas promoted by different affiliates of the National Wrestling Alliance. This is to gain experience in the business, and this is what most wrestlers did at the time. This happened, though, to coincide with both the rise of the World Wrestling Federation through Hulkamania and the subsequent decline of said territory system as a result of the WWF's rise in power and prominence. Yep. The WWF pushed out all the little, all the smaller regional wrestling promotions by gobbling up their time on the. Yep. Uh, yeah, and I think we, if I remember correctly, we talked a little bit about how the the territories yeah. worked in our right. original wrestling episode, uh, which was right. what like number five, six. six. <laughs> 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 we can look that up real quick. Yeah. Yeah, it was a lot a while back. Uh, at the time, there was there was a in in the early '80s, there was like five or six, or four or five wrestling promotions in the in the yeah, Texas. Number four, way back in episode number four, yeah. uh, we talked about uh, a bit about the the territories when we talked about Texas wrestling. Yeah, and you just you just did your time on each of these territories. If you know you you work for a while in a territory, and then. You know, as you if you if you did well, then you did well, and if and if you didn't, you know, as you cooled down in your popularity or or whatever, then you could go to the next promotion uh, and work there, and you also gained different experiences and met different people. So it was it was a big yep. good form of networking at the time. Yep. Now in January of 1985, Michaels was booked for some matches in Dallas's World Class Champion Wrestling, and he was working for Fritz von Erich, the patriarch of the Von Erich wrestling family. By April, he moved to another NWA territory based out of Kansas City known as Central States Wrestling. This territory had a reputation for being one of the worst paying promotions in the country, but Michaels was partnered for the first time with another young, good-looking, quote, babyface or good guy named Marty Jannetty. Together, they defeated the Batten Twins for the NWA Central States Tag Team Championship Michaels then returned home to Texas to compete in Texas All-Star Wrestling, which is what the San Antonio promotion was now calling itself. While there, he partnered with a young Canadian wrestler named Paul Diamond as the American Breed Tag Team, which was an odd misnomer yeah, because Michaels replaced Nick Kaniski, another Canadian, in that team. They were given the TASW Tag Team Championship and renamed themselves American Force and feuded with Japanese Force who were actually Japanese. How <laughs> odd for professional wrestling. Yeah, I, They were actually such, from Such Japan. authenticity. It's all fake. That's what you're all thinking out there. No, no. They were really Japanese. But everything else was fake. In 1986, Michaels moved on to the much larger American Wrestling Association, which had national coverage on ESPN. After a few singles matches, he was teamed with his old tag partner, Marty Jannetty, and they were given the name the Midnight Rockers, a take on the rock and roll wrestlers gimmick of spandex and neon bandanas that had made stars out of the Rock and Roll Express in Memphis and the Carolinas. 
They became the hottest stars in the promotion and quickly won the AWA World Tag Team Championship from Doug Summers and Buddy Rose. Just to give you an idea of the Rock and Roll, uh, I'm sorry, the Rock and Roll Express and the the Midnight Rockers, uh, you think uh, think like David Lee Roth circa 1984. Oh yeah, totally, big, totally. Big hair, spandex, bandanas everywhere, uh, and, and sunglasses. They were good looking guys. They came to the ring, rock rock music, and you know this was a promotion that you know the the hottest star up to that point that was. Uh, Baron von Raschke and yeah, uh, the, the, the Macho Man Randy Savage aesthetic. Yeah, yeah, basically. That. Yeah. Well, in uh, 1987, the Rockers were poached from the AWA by the World Wrestling Federation because that's what Vince McMahon did. He found the hot acts everywhere and hired them. This was the period when uh, he was working to become the single dominant force in professional wrestling, and he gave any star for his promotion. He gave any. And he gave any big star for his competition, at least they got an offer. Uh, they lasted two weeks. They were fired due to an incident at a bar. In, the auto, uh, in his autobiography, Michaels claimed it was just a misunderstanding, but most reliable accounts seemed to indicate it was because of their cocky attitude and their over-the-top partying. Uh, apparently, the story is he walked up to Vince McMahon in a bar and had some cowboy boots on and Vince asked him what he was wearing, and he said, cowboy boots. And he said, well, those boots were made for walking. So he fired him on the spot. Jeez. <laughs> yeah. Well, they uh, returned to the AWA, and they won the tag team battle. They they returned to the AWA, and they immediately won the tag team titles back from Rose and Summers in a very bloody match, which was taped for ESPN at the Showboat Casino in Las Vegas. And their next opponents were the tag team Bad Company, which consisted of Hawaiian native Pat Tatnaka and Michaels' old tag team partner Paul Diamond, who was presumably playing a Canadian, finally. A year later, they re-signed with the WWF, and they dropped the belts back to the Bad Company. Now, let's take a moment to consider that this was uh, taped for ESPN in a time before uh, the Ocho. So this yes. was straight-up ESPN was featuring uh, professional wrestling. Uh-huh. Uh, afternoon. Three o'clock in the afternoon. Yep. Three o'clock central. Welcome and, uh, to welcome after, to the nineteen eighties, everyone. Yeah. Uh, after school. And Michaels hit a bloody gusher. Uh which he he used a blade to cut his head open. That was yep. that was the way they worked back then. That's that was that was uh that was fake. He didn't mm-hmm. actually I mean he really cut himself, but yeah. 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 Um now the Rockers' second debut in the WWF occurred on July seventh, nineteen eighty eight. And they quickly became one of the most popular teams in the promotion. I guess they were so popular that Vince McMahon could not resist. Um, they were particularly popular with women and children. Kids loved their flashy moves and glam rock hair and outfits. They appealed to the female audience for obvious reasons, since they were young and handsome and they had muscles on their muscles. They became mid-card fixtures on television and pay-per-view for the next two years, even been getting a phantom run with a WWF Tag Team Championship in 1990, beating from um, okay, what is a phantom run? Uh, well, a phantom run is where they had a they won the belts uh, in front of an audience, a live audience, but it was not televised and it was never mentioned on television. So okay. the only people that knew that it happened were the ones in the ring and the people on the. In- oh, okay, it mentions that there. Okay, right. Whoops, sorry, go I did do that again. Yeah. 
They became mid-card fixtures on television and pay-per-view for the next two years, even getting a phantom run with the WWF Tag Team Championship in 1990, where they beat the Hart Foundation, Bret Hart and Jim Neidhart. Uh, this match never aired on television. That's why it was called a phantom run. And the switch only occurred because Neidhart was having a contract dispute, which was settled before the result could be acknowledged on TV. So uh, for a short period of time, they were uh, they had the title, but it was never really uh, publicized. Yeah, I mean, you read some of the, the there's some pretty esoteric wrestling websites and they have match results from all the house shows, which is shows that are not televised. They, it was apparently they did de- they did defend the belt uh, two times um, and uh, but it was never acknowledged on TV. So it didn't happen, basically. Yep. Uh, and, and you know the thing about the the Rockers getting the belt was uh, is that they were not they're not actually big guys. Uh, Marty Jannetty and Shawn Michaels were both about six feet tall uh, at at the most uh, and weighed at the time probably two twenty two maybe two thirty but probably between two hundred and two hundred pounds. So they were they were smaller guys. They were really fast and mobile wrestlers. So they they did a lot of they were called tag team specialists and they were. Did a lot of coordinated moves where, like, they do. They they both come in from outside the ring over the top rope and do a handstand, like where they reach over to the to the to the the mat and the ring and like kind of do a handstand over the rope, uh, or they'd uh, both do drop kicks off of the top rope against their opponent. So they do a lot of coordination stuff. So that they were that that was kind of their style, uh, and that was uh, that was what they were well known for. They weren't giant big guys like the Road Warriors or Demolition or or um, uh, even big muscle guys like the British Bulldogs, who really they got the British Bulldogs spot when the Bulldogs left the company. So anyway, a little bit of wrestling insider baseball for you. The Rockers also had memorable matches with the Twin Towers, the Brain Busters, the Bolsheviks, Power and Glory, the Powers of Pain, Demolition, and the Orient Express, which consisted of Tanaka, a Hawaiian, and Diamond, a Canadian under a red mask who'd been poached from the AWA. During this time, Michaels came into his own as a performer and came to be seen as the superior worker and personality in the group. Solo matches with Bret Hart, Arn Anderson, Macho Man Randy Savage, and the Nature Boy Ric Flair all attested to the promise the company saw in Michaels. So I just want to point out, the Orin Express, who were supposed to be Japanese evil bad guys, were played by a Hawaiian and a Canadian bad guy under a red mask, so... Just, just let that sink in. At any rate, the Rockers broke up on December 21st, 1991, when Michael super kicked Marty Jannetty, which is a kick. Uh, you kick someone in the face while you're standing up. It's like a it's like a Chuck Norris thrust kick, right? But it's to the face. Anyway, he super kicked him uh, in an interview segment, and he threw him through a glass window on the set of Brutus Beefcake's Barbershop Talk Show. The incident kicked off Michael's career into overtime, and he became and that incident that of him throwing Marty Jannetty through the glass became a popular TV clip. Michaels went solo, and he became a prominent heel or bad guy, and he was known as the Boy Toy, and later the Heartbreak Kid. He further refined his personality to be super vain and cocky. Over the next three years, he. He won the WWF Intercontinental Championship several times and also the WWF Tag Team Champion two times with his partner and sometime bodyguard, a seven-footer named Diesel, who was his real-life friend, Kevin Nash. 
one of his most consistently entertaining opponents was Bret Hart, who had been in the Hart Foundation tag team. Michael Hart had tremendous chemistry because they were similar size and they had similar ambition. They both wanted to be known as the best technical wrestlers uh, in the in the world. Uh, they became long-term rivals on the screen, although at that time, dum dum dum, they were friendly in real life. <gasps> Foreshadowing scandal. Now, another key opponent and friend during this time was Razor Ramon, real name Scott Hall. Their feud over the Intercontinental Championship culminated in a ladder match at WrestleMania 10 that Michaels lost, but which was voted Match of the Year. During this time, Michaels formed a backstage group called The Click, with a K and a Q, initially uh, writing or traveling partners and workout friends who decided to work together to help each other's careers. This group consisted of Ramon, Diesel, a young wrestler named the 123 Kid, uh, real name Sean Waltman, and another young wrestler fresh to the company named Hunter Hurst Helmsley, uh, who was Paul Levesque. This group was accused of having too much clout with the WWF owner Vince McMahon and using that clout to become dominant in the WWF for several years at the expense of other wrestlers. They were also accused of only wanting to have good matches with each other and bullying newer, less connected guys backstage. Michaels disputed this claim, saying McMahon only pushed deserving wrestlers. What nobody disputes was that other than Helmsley, the members of the clique all developed terrible reputations for drinking and prescription drug abuse. Sounds like an ad hoc uh, wrestlers union. Sort of it was. Yeah, I mean, it really was. Michaels headlined a number of pay-per-views, including failed attempts to win the WWF title at Survivor Series 1992 versus Bret Hart and at WrestleMania 9 and at WrestleMania 11 against Diesel. He won the Royal Rumble two years in a row in 95 and 96. His second win earned him a shot at the World Championship, now held by his old rival Bret Hart. He won in the championship match at WrestleMania 12, managed by his mentor Jose Lothario, in an overtime of a 60-minute Iron Man match, considered one of the greatest wrestling matches of the modern era. Uh, did, you watch, Man, did you watch that? Yeah. Did you, did you watch yeah. that, Sean? Yeah, I've seen that match. Uh, it's it's an hour-long match where you try to score as many pins during the match as you can. Uh, and it they were they were tied at no pins at the end of the match, and then they had an overtime, and Shawn Michaels won the match. It's a very good match. It's a little long. It's boring in the middle. Uh, in May 1995, Michaels' friends Nash and Hall left the WWF to go to massive contracts at the rival World Championship Wrestling. Uh, WCW, and this was owned by uh, Turner Networks. Waltman was fired at the same time due to uh, substance abuse issues, and he later joined them in WCW to form the massively popular NWO, or New World Order, with a now bad guy or heel, Hulk Hogan, uh, and set the business on fire. Michaels and Helmsley were left in the WWF alone, and after an incident, after Hall and Nash's last show in the WWE, Yeah, Helmsley was in political hot water for quite some time. Hart believes that Michaels quickly began, uh, Bret Hart later stated that he believed Michaels quickly began to crack at the time under the stress of being the top guy that everyone was counting on and not having his friends there to support him. And this is what Bret Hart said in his uh, autobiography that was 
released several years later. He had a number of very good matches with wrestler Mankind, or Mick Foley. Uh, people may know him, or as Cactus Jack was later known. Uh, with the wrestler Vader, as well as his former bodyguard, wrestler Sid Vicious. Uh, and the pre-Stone Cold Steve Austin, who at the time was known as the Ringmaster. But at the time, the WWF was in a slump thanks to the National Hall-fueled success of WCW's competing Monday Nitro program. It aired at the same time as Monday Night Raw. Michaels began complaining more and becoming paranoid, and he sank deeper into a pill addiction. Now, was this bad guy Hulk Hogan? Is this when he uh, dyed all his hair black? Uh, He didn't dye his hair black, but he started wearing black, and he dyed his mustache black. Yeah, okay, that's what I was thinking of, his mustache. Yes. That's the yes. only hair I usually see. You, you don't see yes. the rest of his hair under the bandana. Yeah, he was not He was not uh, uh, red and red and yellow Superman, um, all-American hero, real American yeah. Hulk Hogan. He was, he was Hollywood Hulk Hogan. <laughs> now, by the spring of 1997, Michaels was returning from some knee surgery, which had forced him to vacate his title because he couldn't compete. And the feud between Michaels and Hart became a real-life affair. Both men made remarks referencing each other's real lives, which they saw as crossing the line during their character interviews, and eventually resulted in an actual backstage fight, not a staged one, which ruined a Monday Night Raw. Hart, who'd recently signed a 20-year deal with the WWF, was sick of dealing with Michaels, and Michaels only wanted to be the top guy. Ironically... Both guys were the heels or bad guys at the time, and the top-rising good guy by the summer of 1997 was now Stone Cold Steve Austin, a beer-drinking, double-crossing redneck. Now, however, Austin broke his neck in August of 1997 from a a botched move in the ring, and his push to the top was uh, stalled and was going to take some time. Both men had led factions in the WWF at the time, Hart led the Hart Foundation, a pro-Canadian anti-American group, and Michaels led a juvenile anti-establishment called D-Generation X, consisting of himself, Hunter Hearst Hemsley, who is now called Triple H, and Helmsley's girlfriend China as in the group. Oh, and Helmsley's girlfriend and Helmsley's girlfriend China as the group. With Austin out, WWF owner Vince McMahon had no way to avoid using Michaels and Austin on top. Behind the scenes, Michaels and Hart were demanding he side with one of them. Now, ultimately, it was money that got in the way. Uh, The feud culminated in a championship match at Survivor Series 1997 in Montreal, Canada, which is Bret Hart's home country, and it became known as the Montreal Screwjob. Uh, Vince was unable to afford Hart's huge contract, and so he released him to go to WCW for way more, more upfront money. But the pes- there was a pesky issue of Bret Hart having the world title, which was not smart. And he had creative control over his last title defenses, which meant he could say whether he won and lost and where he won and lost. This was in his contract. So WWF is going to release him from his contract, but until they released him, he was still under contract. So this resulted ultimately in Vince McMahon and Shawn Michaels conspiring to screw Bret Hart out of the title on live pay-per-view and before cameras filming a documentary on Bret Hart. He, Vince McMahon came to ringside and told the referee to ring the bell and give the belt, give the title to Shawn Michaels. Uh, and 
that was probably one of the most famous moments in wrestling history. Now, Michaels denied to Hart initially that he'd been part of the conspiracy, but all the evidence pointed to, of course, he freaking knew about the conspiracy. And later on in his autobiography, Michaels admitted this was the case because he felt like he was being backed into a corner. At the 1998 Royal Rumble, Shawn Michaels sustained an injury during a casket match title defense with The Undertaker that herniated two discs in his back and crushed another one entirely. He won the match but could not compete in the next month's pay-per-view and ultimately wrestled in terrible pain in the main event of WrestleMania 14, where he lost the world championship to Stone Cold Steve Austin, and even took a punch from guest referee Mike Tyson. The next night, Michaels went home to retire, doctors telling him he was lucky to walk, much less ever wrestle again. He was 32 years old. The brutal, brutal sport of professional wrestling. Yeah. Now, I have seen, I have seen the match where he takes that, so what they call a bump. He takes the, the he hits the, he hits his casket which is a, sort of like how I hit the the, uh, the microwave. <laughs> the microwave. Yeah. He, well, the he microwave is like a much tinier electric yeah, his, casket. Yeah. Yeah. His, <laughs> his back, his back basically accordions around a uh, giant mm. uh, uh, casket uh, that the Undertaker mm. is using in this match. And it is just disturbing looking at it. Yeah. It, I, it, I just, um, it reminds me of the, uh, there's a sequence in Deadpool 2 that's out, if you've seen it, that's... <laughs> yeah. Back pain. Is I, the only uh, way I'm to amused. It. I'm amused by the uh, the idea that there is a wrestling thing known as a casket match. Yes, you you have to put your opponent into a casket and seal it to win the match. There you go. Well, he is the Undertaker. Yeah. No. For the next several years, Michaels was in and out of the WWF as a figurehead commissioner or guest referee on television. He opened a wrestling school in San Antonio which got on local television with himself the announcer and his old friend Paul Diamond as the main star and bad guy, again under a mask, this time as Viper, a sort of G.I. Joe villain. That guy can't catch a break. He finally got back surgery in 1999, shortly after marrying a WCW Nitro dancer named Rebecca, who he'd met through Kevin Nash. They had a son, Cameron, in 2000, and a daughter, Cheyenne, in 2004. Uh, after his back surgery, Michaels progressed enough physically that there was actually discussion about bringing him back to the WWF, which had now changed its name to the World Wrestling Entertainment, or the WWE. However, he was still hooked on prescription painkillers, and he showed up to WWF, and he showed up to WWE TV tapings in no shape to be anywhere near a camera, uh, and he got sent home. He was told not. He was told to get go home and and get right. Uh, Michaels' fear was that he was going to negatively influence his young son, and it prompted him to abandon his previous lifestyle and get clean from drugs. So he says that his he was passed out on the couch and he kind of woke up and his son was his you know toddler son was crawling on him. His wife was had gone to get uh, groceries and stuff. So uh, it really scared him straight. Uh, soon after, in early 2002, he became a born again Christian and he joined the Cornerstone Church in San Antonio. This had a profound impact on both his professional and his personal life. On June 3rd of 2002, Michaels returned to WWE television, joining his friend Kevin Nash as a new member of the New World Order. WCW had been bought out by the WWE the year before. 
The NWO did not last long uh, due to Nash suffering an injury, and Michael resumed his on-screen friendship with Triple H, coming to the ring in their former DX attire. But Triple H, yeah, but Triple H turned on Michaels, igniting a bloody and heated feud for the next two years. Michaels was again one of the top stars in the promotion and traded the world title several times with Triple H, who was by now married to Vince McMahon's daughter Stephanie, an on-screen performer herself. Keep it all in the family there. Marry the boss's daughter. Yeah. That's one way to do it. That is the way to do it. For the next several years, Michaels cemented his reputation as one of the top in-ring performers of all time. But unlike previous stints on top, he was known to be able to work with others and was considered a positive leader in the locker room. He went on to have major feuds and great matches with Chris Jericho, Kurt Angle, John Cena, Hulk Hogan, Chris Benoit, Randy Orton, Dave Bautista, Goldberg, and even worked a program against Vince McMahon and his son Shane where God was Michael's tag team partner. In 2006, Michaels made up with Triple H and they reformed DX, though this run was more of a nostalgia bit. So that Dave Bautista, that's not... That's, that is... Yeah, that's, that's Drax. Drax. That's Drax. Okay. Yeah, that's and the bad guy from that one Bond movie. Belding correctly. Oh, I'm sorry. Just... But and Blade Runner. Yes. And yeah. and the Goldberg, my uh, the Goldberg Scott is the host of Forged in Fire. Yeah. I no, I know who Goldberg is. Yeah. 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 These are these are the big names. These are the big names he worked with. But he also worked with many many other uh, smaller names who are not as yeah. well noted. Well, in 2008, Michaels was asked by his friend and mentor Ric Flair to be his opponent at WrestleMania 24. At, rest, at WrestleMania 24, in a match where if Sean won the match, Ric Flair would retire. The night before, Michaels inducted Flair into the WWE Hall of Fame. He ended the match by pinning Flair after a superkick, saying, I love you, I'm sorry. This led to a feud with Dave Batista, uh, also known as Drax, over the match, in which Batista won the feud and had most of the match. Uh, and then he had another lengthy feud with Chris Jericho. In 2009, Michaels and Triple H again reformed DX for another nostalgia run. In addition, and more poignantly, Michaels finally buried the hatchet with Bret Hart as they shook hands and hugged in the ring. This has been confirmed by both men to be a real-life reconciliation that laid to rest animosities going all the way back to the Montreal Screwjob. At WrestleMania 26, Michaels challenged The Undertaker's 17-match WrestleMania winning streak, coming up short in the match of the year and one of the top matches in WWE, WWF history. A year later, at WrestleMania 27, he put his career on the line, starting stating he would retire if he could not beat The Undertaker. He came up short this time, and the next night on Monday Night Raw, Michaels gave an emotional farewell speech, ending with, Shawn Michaels has left the building. Of course, wrestlers retiring are like bands going on their final tour, and by December he signed a long-term deal with the WWE to serve as an ambassador and again had a DX reunion with Triple H at the Tribute to the Troops taping. On a January episode of Raw, it was announced that he was part of the WWE Hall of Fame Class of 2011, where Triple H inducted him. They were joined by fellow Click members Kevin Nash and Sean Waltman, the first time all of them had been together in over a decade. Sean also showed up on an episode of Raw in June where he dealt out not one, not two, but three mighty super kicks. 
Over the next couple of years, Michael's popped up from time to time on various shows and pay-per-views, usually as a guest referee or as a manager for his old friend Triple H. He'd also become a trainer at the WWE Performance Center, teaching the finishing class, the last of the four levels of classes that new wrestlers take. Shawn Michaels has said, though, that his most important role has been being a father to his children and serving in various ministry fields. He's been active in his San Antonio church and has also been active in Christian athlete evangelism programs. He appeared in 2017 in the faith-based film The Resurrection of Gavin Stone. He also has become an avid outdoorsman hosting the hunting and fishing show Shawn Michaels' McMillan River Adventures. In a 2018 interview... Shawn Michaels spoke about the possibility of returning the ring. His answer proved that, legend though he is, he's ready to pass the torch to the next generation. He says, I'm always humbled and very flattered by the fact that after all these years, people still believe enough in my ability to still do it. Look, there's a part of me that knows I could, but at the same time, this is a young man's game. I love the fact that the future of the WWE is in such good, capable hands. It's a pleasure for me to watch it and go forward. As much as it would be enjoyable to wrestle, I'm more excited in seeing these young men take WWE into the future. So, today we at Come and Take It salute one of Texas' favorite wrestling sons, the Heartbreak Kid, Shawn Michaels, who staged such a remarkable personal and professional comeback to become the legend he always had the potential to be. The end. Yeah, well, I mean, all I can say is that Shawn Michaels and a lot of these guys came way after my uh, active interest in wrestling. So it was always a name that I'd heard, um, but I never knew. I never knew he was uh, considered a son of San Antonio uh, and a Texan. So that's that's a really good story to hear. So I'm yeah. I'm glad he's doing well. Well, one of his one of his big headline moments back in in the '90s when he was world champion. Was that uh, they had a SummerSlam pay per view, I believe. Uh, no, I'm sorry, they had a Survivor Series pay per view uh, in San Antonio, and this was in 90, 98. They had a big, huge pay per view uh, in uh, mid mid 97. Uh, yeah, summer 97. So it had been SummerSlam in San Antonio at the Alamo Dome, and they sold it out. Now, they didn't actually sell it out, they papered it out, which means they gave away a lot of tickets. But it was full of people, and he was his hands were held raised high uh, in his hometown in the, uh, what was now the home stadium for uh, for him. So it was a that was a big moment for him. Um, but you know, I as a wrestling fan throughout the nineties, eighties, nineties, and into the uh, mid two thousands, uh, I was well familiar with Shawn Michaels and with many of these these moments and these events that he occurred in. You know, as a as a person who was often on the internet talking with people and reading the backstage stuff, I'm one of those people that was more fascinated with the backstage stuff. And he was a pain in the ass, apparently, uh, backstage. <laughs> uh, he was just a miserable, miserable guy. And and he just he, he did you know even his own admission is he, he the pressure got to him, uh, the pressure of being the the main guy and his his already bad personal habits getting way worse, you know, and, and that's the thing is these guys, they're on the road, you know, they were on the road 350 to 360 days a year, uh, traveling constantly, most of the time in cars from town to town. Uh, and you know, they, they did take flights and stuff and they did a lot of international tours. 
uh, at the time in their in the mid early to mid nineties. They were, you know, the thing is, is that yes, the outcomes are predetermined. Uh, it is quote unquote fake, but the physicality of the of what they do is real. I mean, you 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 hit someone, you hit someone. You you run into someone, you run into someone. They have a saying in wrestling. You, how do you teach someone how to fall? You know, they, they do teach you how to fall, take flat bat bumps to minimize the impact, but they still, you still have an impact. It, you know, you fall on your back 300, you know, 200, you know, times a week, uh, from, you know, seven days a week, you're going to have an impact. Your knees are going to have an impact. So that, you know, that, that was a big part of why the, the, the prescription drug abuse really happened, especially in the nineties was because these guys were running and gunning and, and they just didn't have time to stop. Uh, and so they they overindulged in pain pills and things like that, but uh, he was very much very much a backstage politician and very much had a chip on his shoulder and it, it really did show. Um, but you know I remember when he had that injury. I remember he was out, and then I remember in 2002 when he came back, and I was like, oh my gosh, it's been five years, and yet when he came back, he was probably better than he had been before. So well, pretty remarkable. You know the thing I'll say that. Is because again, I think I'm I'm more with Scott of you know, I don't uh, I didn't follow it as closely as you did during this time, but you know Shawn Michaels' story really resonates to me. Just thinking of all the classic Texan stories, you know, when we get into these stories of Texans of uh, people who have great second acts yeah. or who come back from a challenge, and yeah. I think that's that's probably the biggest and most Texan thing about this story is the fact that you know he had this. Um, crippling injury he had personal problems he you know he picked himself up by his bootstraps and cleaned it up and he's turned it into this really um exciting second act mm-hmm. yeah yeah and you can go back I, I don't know where you you were probably not watching wrestling by the by the mid 80s when he showed up in in san antonio as a no. as a young just a young guy no but, but I mean, then he, i was he worked too far south yeah yeah, he but he worked with the guys. You know, he worked in the hemisphere and he worked in the junction. You know that 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 junction uh, nightclub where they did a lot of the tapings of the the early in the mid '80s San Antonio wrestling. But you know, truthfully, Mike, he 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 watched the same shows you did as a kid. So, you know, yeah. he was he was watching huh. the exact same shows that you were watching at the exact same time uh, after after school in in San Antonio in, in the early '80s. But um. You know the the other thing is that you know so he he did it he put in his time he did his dues in the in the in the wrestling circuit in the eighties, but uh you know the thing about it is is that that click group even though everybody was you know, hated them you know because of what they you know how they threw the power around, when you think about it they they were responsible for much of the main event programs in the mid mid nineties in the WWF, and then when Scott Hall and Kevin Nash went. And Scott Sean Walton went to the NWA. They they set the place on fire, and they they really caused caused a actual competition to occur with the WWF. And then Shawn Michaels was left there, and and you know putting over Steve Austin as the next generation superstar really let the WWF take the, the lead. So you know the influence that they had uh, in the late and nineties and early two thousands was pretty profound. And then we talked about, about Triple H that he married the boss's daughter. 
he was you know, one of the main stars of the, of the, of the late 90s and early 2000s. He married the boss's daughter. Now he is the executive vice president for wrestling operations for the World Wrestling Federation, World Wrestling Entertainment. He is one of the most powerful people in that business as well, which just signed a $2 billion television deal with Fox. So... Uh, and he was a major part of it. He's the, he is he's actually Shawn Michaels' boss in the Performance Center because Triple H is in charge of the Performance Center um, and training the young wrestlers. So, you know, it's very interesting that they they really you know that they had that impact in in this business, which is a billion dollar, multi billion dollar business at this point, yeah. and it was at the time too. So it was a multi million dollar business at the time. Yep. Nothing like a good second act, though. Yeah. Nothing like a good second act. More important than that, great Texan. So. Great Texan. So. Uh, yeah. It seems yeah. like he seems like everything I've seen him. He seems like he seems like a much better human being than he was in the '80s and '90s. So. Well, aren't I'm, I'm we glad. all better than we were in the '80s and '90s, though? Uh, I don't know. Well, yeah. I mean, not me. Some... I'm talking about you people. <laughs> Some people. <laughs> That wraps things up for today. You can find notes and links from today's show at brainstable.com. We'd love to hear from you, so like and share us on Facebook, follow the show on Twitter at Texas Podcast, or go to brainstable.com and leave some feedback. You can find our show and many other great history podcasts at historypodcasters.com. And why not follow us individually, too? I'm on Twitter at Mr. Java. I'm Max Sean, two ends. And I'm Scotticus. A big shout out to our good friend James Abendroth for helping us to research and write this episode. You can find him on Twitter and Instagram at Blackguard Press, and you can find his fiction work at blackguardpress.com. If you like our show, tell your friends and leave a review on iTunes because that really helps us out to find listeners just like you. And if you'd like to support the show financially, please visit patreon.com slash texaspodcast, where you too can become a come-and-take-it-Texas-ranger. We hope you'll join us next time, and remember that even if you aren't from Texas, Texas wants you anyway. 